Chapter Seven of Flood Tide. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Roger Moline. Flood Tide by Sarah Ware Bassett. Chapter Seven: A Second Spirit Appears. Days came and went, days golden and blue, until a week had passed, and although Robert Morton haunted the post office. Nothing was heard from the jeweler to whom he had sent the silver buckle. Neither did the eager young man catch even a fleeting glimpse of its owner. It was, he told himself, unlikely that she would come to the Spence house again. When her property was repaired, she probably would expect someone either to let her know or bring it to her. It was to the latter alternative that Bob was pinning his hopes. The errand would prove a perfectly natural excuse for him to go to the Brewster home, and once there he would meet the girl's family and perhaps be asked to come again. Until the trinket came back from Boston, therefore, he must bide his time with patience. Nevertheless, the logic of these arguments did not prevent him from turning sharply toward the door of the workshop whenever there was a footfall on the grass. Any day, any hour, any moment— the lady of his dreams might appear once more. Had not Willie said that she sometimes trimmed bonnets for Teeny? And was it not possible, yea, even likely, that his aunt might be needing a bonnet right away? Women were always needing bonnets, argued the young man vaguely. At least both his mother and sister were, and he had not yet lived long enough in his aunt's household to realize that with Teeny Morton, the purchase of a bonnet was not an equally casual enterprise. He even had the temerity to ask Celestina, when he saw her arrayed for the Grange one afternoon, why she did not have a hat with pink in it, and was chagrined to receive the reply that she did not like pink, and that anyway her hat was well enough as it was, and she couldn't have another for a good couple of years. "'I don't go throwing money away on new hats like you city folks do,' she said somewhat tartly. A hat has to do me three seasons for best and a fourth for common. I've too much to do to go chasing after the fashions. I leave that to Bart Coffin's wife. Who is Bart Coffin? inquired Bob, amused by her show of spirit. You ain't met Bart? Not yet. Well, you will. He's the one who always used to stow all his catch of fish in the bow of the boat, cause he said it was easier to row downhill. He ain't no heavyweight for brains, as you can see, and years ago he married a wife feather-headed as himself. He did it out of whole cloth, too, so he's got no one to blame if you don't like his bargain. At the time of the wedding he was terrible stuck up about his bride, and he gave her a black satin dress that outdid anything the town had ever laid eyes on. It was loaded down with ruffles and jet and lace, and fitted her like as if she was poured into it. Folks said it was made in Brockton, but whether it was or not there's no way of knowing. Anyhow, back she pranced to Wilton in that gown, and for a year or more, whenever there was a church fair or a meeting of the Eastern Star or a funeral, You'd be certain of seeing Minnie Coffin there in her black satin. There wasn't a layout in town could touch it, 
and by and by it got so that it set the mark of every gatherin' that was held, those where Minnie's satin didn't appear being rated as of no account. Celestina paused, and her mouth took an upward curve, as if some pleasant reverie engrossed her. But after a while, she presently went on, there came an upheaval in the styles. Sleeves got smaller, and skirts began to be nipped in. Minnie's dress weren't wore a particle, but it looked as out of date as Joseph's coat would look on Willie. The women sort of nudged one another and said that now Miss Bartley Coffin would have to step down a peg and stop being leader of the fashions. Celestina ceased rocking and leaned forward impressively. "'But did she?' declaimed she with oratorical eloquence. "'Did she? Not a bit of it. Minnie got pictures and patterns from Boston, scanted the skirt, took in the sleeves, made a wide girdle with the breadth she took out of the front, and there she was again, high-stepping as ever. Robert Morton laughed with appreciation. Since then, continued Celestina, for at least fifteen years she's been making that dress over and over. Now she'll get a new breadth of goods or a couple of breaths, turn the others upside down or cut em over, and by keepin' everlastingly at it, she contrives to look like the pictures in the papers most of the time. It's maddening to the rest of us. Abby Brewster knows Minnie well, and somewhere in a book she's got set down the gyrations of that dress. I wouldn't be bothered recording it, but Abby always was a methodical soul. She could give you the date of every inch of satin in the whole thing. Just now there's 1914 sleeves, the front breadths are 1918, the back ones 1911. Most of the waist is January 1912, with a June 1913 vest. Half the girdle is made out of 1910 satin, and half out of 1919. Of course there's lights when the black don't all look the same. Still, unless you got close up, you wouldn't notice it, and Minnie Coffin keeps on setting the styles for the town like she always has. The narrator paused for breath. She's making it over again right now, she announced, rising from her chair and moving toward the pantry. You can always tell when she is, cause she pulls down all her front curtains and won't come to the door when folks knock. The shades was down when Abby and me drove by there last week, and to make sure, Abby got out and tapped to see if anybody came to let us in. But nobody did. We said then, Minnie's resurrecting the black satin. You mark my words, she'll be in church in it Sunday. It generally takes her about ten days to get it done. I was expecting she'd give it another overhauling, for she ain't done nothing to it for three months at least and the styles have changed quite a little in that time. Sometimes I tell Willie I believe we'll live to see her laid out in that dress yet. "'You can bet Bart would draw a sigh of relief if we did,' chimed in the inventor. "'Why, the money that woman spent pulling that darn thing to pieces and putting it together again is a caution. Bart said you'd be dumbfounded if you could know what he's paid out.' If the coffin lid was once clamped down on the pest, he'd raise a hallelujah, poor fellow. "'Willie!' 
gasped the horrified Celestina. "'Oh, I ain't saying he'd be glad to see Minnie goin', the little old man protested. "'But that black satin has been a bone of contention ever since the day it was bought. To begin with, it cost about ten times what Bart calculated twould. He told me that himself. And it's been runnin' up in money ever since. When he got it, he kind of figured twould be an investment, something like one of them twenty-year endowments, and that for nigh on to a quarter of a century, Minnie wouldn't need much of anything else. But his reckoning was agog. It's been nothing but that black satin all his married life let alone the price of continually reinforcing it, the wear and tear on Minnie's nerves when she's tinkering with it is something awful. Bart says that dress ain't never out of her mind. She's rasped and peevish all the time, planning how she can fit the pieces in to look like the pictures. It's worse than fussing over the cut-up puzzles folks do. Sometimes at night she'll wake him out of a sound sleep to tell him she's just thought how she can eke new sleeves out of the side panels, or make a pleated front for the waist out of the girdle. I guess Bart don't get much rest during making over spells. I saw him yesterday at the post office, and he was glum as an oyster, and when I asked him was he sick, all he said was he hoped there'd be no black satins in heaven. I told you she was fixin' it over cried Celestina triumphantly. "'So you was at the store, was you, Willie? You didn't say nothing about it.' "'I forgot I went,' confessed the little man. "'Let me see. I believe t'was more nails took me down.' "'Did you get any mail?' "'No. Yes. I don't know. Pears like I did get something.' If I did, it's in the pocket of my other coat. Going into the hall, he returned with a small white package, which he gave to Celestina. It ain't for me, said she, after she had examined the address. It's Bob's. Bob's, eh? queried the inventor. I didn't notice, not having on my reading glasses. So it's Bob's, is it? Yes, answered Celestina eyeing the neat parcel curiously. "'Whoever's sending you a bundle all tied up with white paper and pink string, Bob? It looks like it was jewelry.' Quickly, Willie sprang to the rescue. "'Oh, Bob's been getting some repairin' done for the Brewsters,' explained he. Delight's buckle was broke, and knowing the best place to send it, he mailed it up to town. "'Oh,' responded Celestina, glancing from one to the other with a half-satisfied air. "'Let's have the thing out and see how it looks, Bob,' Willie went on. Blushingly, Robert Morton undid the box. Yes, there amid wrappings of tissue paper, on a bed of blue cotton wool, rested the buckle of silver, its burnished surface sparkling in the light. He took it out and inspected it carefully. "'It is all okay,' observed he, with an attempt at indifference. "'See what a fine piece of work they made of it.' The old man took from the table drawer a long leather case, drew out another pair of spectacles, which he exchanged for the ones he was already wearing, 
and after scrutinizing the buckle and scowling at it for an interval, he carried it to the window. "'What's the matter?' Bob demanded, instantly alert. "'Isn't the repairing properly done?' "'Tain't the repairin' I'm lookin' at,' Willie returned slowly. "'I've no quarrel with that.' Still, he continued to twist and turn the disk of silver, now holding it at arm's length, now bringing it close to his eye with a puzzled intentness. Robert Morton could stand the suspense no longer. "'What's wrong with it?' he at last burst out. Willie did not look up, but evidently he caught the note of impatience in the younger man's tone, for he drawled quizzically, "'Don't it strike you as a mite peculiar that a buckle should go to Boston with D.L.H. on it and come home marked with C.L.G. What? That's what's on it. C.L.G. See for yourself. It can't be. Come and have a look. The inventor placed the trinket in Robert Morton's hand. C.L.G., repeated he, as he deciphered the intertwined letters of the monogram. You are right, sure as fate. Jove! "'They've sent you the wrong girl,' remarked Willie. "'It's clear as a bell on a still night. "'There must have been two girls and two buckles, "'and the jewelers mixed them up. "'You've got the other ladies.' "'That's a nice mess,' Bob ejaculated irritably. "'Why, I'd rather have given a hundred dollars than have this happen. "'I'll wring that man's neck.' "'Easy, youngster, easy.' cautioned Willie. Don't go heaving all your cargo overboard till you find you're really sinking. Tain't likely Miss C.L.G. will care a row of pins for Miss D.L.H.'s buckle. She'll be sending out an S.O.S. for her own, and will be ready to join you in flaying the jeweler. Give the poor varmint time, and he'll shift things around all right. But Miss Hathaway... Delight's lived the best part of two weeks without that buckle, and she don't look none the worst for not having it. I saw her in the post office only yesterday, and— "'Did you?' cried Bob eagerly, then stopped short, flushed, and bit his lip. "'Yes, she was there,' Willie returned serenely, without appearing to have noticed his guest's agitation. "'Young Farwell from Cambridge.' the one that has all the money, was talking to her, and she had that Harvard professor who boards at the Brewsters along, too. Carlton, his name is, Jasper Carlton. He's a mighty good-looking chap. He stole a glance at the face that glowered out of the window. Had you chose to stroll down to the store with me like I asked you to, you might have seen her yourself. Oh, I, I didn't need to see her, stammered Bob. "'Maybe not,' was the tranquil answer. "'And she didn't need to see you, neither, "'judging from the way she was talking and laughing with them other fellers. "'Still, a young man is never the worse for chatting with a nice girl. "'Now, son, if I was you, I wouldn't get stirred up over this jewelry business. "'We'll get a rise out of Miss C.L.G. pretty soon, "'and when she comes to the surface—' "'Who's that at the gate, Willie?' called Celestina from the kitchen. "'What?' 
There's somebody at the gate in a big red automobile. She's coming in. You go and see what she wants, cause my apron ain't fresh. Likely she's lost her way, or else is hunting board. Although Willie shuffled obediently into the hall, he was not in time to prevent the sonorous peal of the bell. "'Yes, he's here,' they heard him say. "'Of course you can speak to him. He's just inside. Won't you step in?' Then, without further ado, and with utter disregard of Celestina's rumpled apron, the door opened and the little inventor ushered into the string-entangled sitting-room a dainty, city-bred girl in a sport suit of white serge. She was not only pretty, but she was perfectly groomed and was possessed of a fascinating vivacity and charm. Everything about her was vivid. The gloss of her brown hair, the sparkle of her eyes, her color, her smile, her immaculate clothes, all were dazzling. She carried her splendor with an air of complete sureness, as if she was accustomed to the supremacy it won for her and expected it. Yet the audacity of her pose had in it a certain fitness and was piquant rather than offensive. The instant she crossed the threshold, Robert Morton leaped to meet her with outstretched hands. "'Cynthia Galbraith!' he cried. "'However came you here?' A ripple of teasing laughter came from the girl. "'You are surprised, then. I thought you would be.' "'Surprised? I can't believe it. "'If you'd written as you should have done, "'you wouldn't have been at all amazed to see me,' "'answered the newcomer severely. "'I meant to write,' the culprit asserted uneasily. "'Maybe you will inform me what you are doing on Cape Cod,' "'went on the lady in an accusing tone. "'How did you know I was here?' "'You can't guess?' "'No, I haven't a glimmer.' From the pocket of her shell-pink sweater she drew forth a small white box of startlingly familiar appearance. "'Does this belong to you?' demanded she. Beneath the mockery of her eyes Robert Morton could feel the color mount to his temples. "'Well, well,' he said, with a ghastly attempt at gaiety, "'so you were C.L.G.' "'Naturally. Didn't the initials suggest the possibility?' "'No, uh, yes. That is, I hadn't thought about it,' he floundered. "'It's funny how things come about sometimes, isn't it? "'I want you to meet my aunt, Miss Morton, and my friend, Mr. Spence. "'I am visiting here.' Immediately the dainty Miss Cynthia was all smiles. "'So it is relatives that bring you to the Cape,' said she. Robert Morton nodded. She seemed mollified. "'Didn't Roger write you that we had taken a house at Bellport for the season?' she asked. "'No,' replied Bob. "'I haven't heard from him for weeks.' "'He's a brute. "'Yes, we came down in May, just after I got back from California. "'We are crazy over the place.' The family will be wild when I tell them you are here. My brother, she went on, turning with a pretty graciousness toward Celestina, was Bob's roommate at Harvard. 
In that way we came to know him very well and have always kept up the acquaintance. "'Do you come from the West, same as my nephew does?' questioned Celestina when there was a pause. The little lady raised her eyebrows deprecatingly. "'No, indeed. The East is quite good enough for us. We are from New York. The boys, however, were always visiting back and forth,' she added with haste. "'So we have quite an affection for Indiana, even if we don't live there.' She sought a conciliatory smile in Robert Morton's direction. "'Couldn't you go back with me in the car, Bob?' she asked, turning toward him. "'And spring a surprise on the household?' Dad's down, Mother's here, and also Grandmother Lee, and the mighty and illustrious Roger, fresh from his law office on Fifth Avenue, is expected Friday. Do come. I am afraid I can't today, Bob answered. Why, Bob, there ain't the least reason in the world you shouldn't go, put in Celestina. The young man fingered the package in his hand, nervously. "'I really couldn't, Cynthia,' he repeated, ignoring the interruption. "'I'd like immensely to come another day, though. "'But today Mr. Spence and I have a piece of work on hand.' He paused, discomfited at meeting the astonished gaze of Willie's mild blue eyes. "'Of course you know best,' Cynthia replied, drawing in her chin with some hauteur. "'I shouldn't think of urging you.' "'I'd be bully glad to come another day,' reiterated Robert Morton, fully conscious he had offended his fair guest, yet determined to stand his ground. "'Tell the affluent Roger to slide over in his racer sometime, when he has nothing better to do, and get me.' "'He will probably only be here for the weekend,' retorted Cynthia coldly. "'Sunday, then. Why not Sunday?' "'Mr. Spence and I do not work Sundays.' "'All right, if you positively won't come today. "'But I don't see why you can't come now, and Sunday, too.' "'I couldn't do that, dear lady.' "'Well, Sunday, then, if that is the earliest you can make it.' She smiled an adieu to Willie and Celestina, and with her little head proudly set, preceded Bob to her car. But although the great engine throbbed and purred, it was some time before it left the gate and flashed its way down the high road toward Bellport. After it had gone, and Bob was once more in the house, Celestina had a score of questions with which to greet him. How remarkable it was the owner of the missing jewelry should be someone he knew. The Galbraiths must be well-to-do. What was the brother like? Did he favor his sister? These and numberless other inquiries like them furnished Celestine with conversation for the rest of the day. Willie, on the contrary, was peculiarly silent, and although his furtive glance traveled at frequent intervals over his young friend's face, he made no comment concerning Miss Cynthia L. Galbraith and her silver buckle. End of chapter 7 Recording by Roger Moline.